How do you capture that sense of just kind of escalating crisis, that sense of fraying normality, that sense that all of these things are kind of colliding at once? There's a, 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 an assumed kind of temporality, an immediacy uh, that's suggested by the language of crisis, but is it really a crisis if we've watched it happen for decades and decades? Um, or is it more just the eventuality of our actions? And the sustenance the country gave me during that period has enlightened me to obviously defer to country, to respect country, and regard it as a, as a, a life force that, that centres my world. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this evening's uh, special online event, The Invisible Now, Writing Crisis and the Future Imaginary, hosted by uh, the Sydney Environment Institute. My name's Christopher Wright. Uh, I'm a professor of organisation studies here at the University of Sydney. Uh, and I'm also a key researcher in the Sydney Environment Institute, uh, which is a, a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. It brings together researchers uh, like myself from across the university and beyond, uh, as you'll see tonight, to address and discuss critical environmental challenges. So before I, uh, we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation uh, and to pay my respects to its traditional owners past, present and future. As we'll discuss tonight, of course, to understand the true gravity of the various intersecting crises which now confront us, uh, we need to first turn to um, First Nations peoples, Indigenous peoples, to listen to their knowledge systems and to understand how we can better reconnect with the natural world and our place within it. Uh, in fact, um, having um, uh, gone through that acknowledgement of country, uh, which I guess can become a somewhat symbolic sort of um, uh, uh, event in these in these uh, uh, panels. I'd actually like to um, invite one of our panelists tonight, uh, Evelyn Araluen, um, to read one of her poems, which I guess confronts some of the issues around these acknowledgements of country and how they can be somewhat symbolic. So, um, Evelyn, I don't know if you're there. Hopefully, you are. Whether you'd be able to. Uh, read, your, read your poem, which is also an acknowledgement of country in a different sort of sense, I guess. Thank you. And, you know, the, the poem that I'm going to read, Acknowledgement of Country, is, uh, I think, written in a, in a pati very particular spirit. But before reading it, I do want to foreground um, the place that I'm speaking from here today, uh, the lands of Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, uh, and to honour and respect their custodianship and ongoing care for country, their um, sovereignty over this place. Uh, having said that, I wrote this poem about the prevalence of terrible acknowledgements of country. So, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects the past, the present, emerging country, elders, care, custodians, I welcome you all, you all like me, to the unpronounceable, the unrememorable time immemorial. Would like to, would like acknowledgement, invitation slash invite you all to be acknowledged and welcome invitation and respects to any Indigenous past, present. 
emerging now, watching me acknowledge, to be acknowledged with my respects and conciliation after the show, during acknowledgements as I regard Indigenous with glances with acknowledgement. I would like to say sovereignty and reconciliation. I would like sovereignty and reconciliation. I would like to say deadly, gubber, blackfella, mob, gammon, cis. Would like to speak the unpronounceable, to say your name, your nation again, again, correct at last when compact. Would like to acknowledge my school trip to Alice. Respect humble, unlivable, unimaginable. Respect those black boys in Alice, except for those black boys in Alice, except for Alice. I would like to wear your flag on shirt and tote and Facebook filter. I would like to graffiti your suburbs with your flag. Would like to ask you about the constitution. Would like to acknowledge that I am asking I would like to acknowledge the decades of struggle from communities I don't drive through. I would like to blame you for your vote and apologise that I didn't bring enough flyers to your suburbs, to your homes. I would like to be invited to your homes, to pay my respects, my acknowledgements. I would like all this acknowledged and to remind everyone that we are meeting on land stolen and remind everyone how sad it is you all died. To remind everyone that you're all dead, or stolen, or silent, how sad it is. I would like respect and acknowledgement for all this respect and acknowledgement. Thank you so much, Evelyn. That's marvellous. And um, I think it speaks nicely to a lot of the things we're going to be talking about tonight in terms of an age of crisis uh, and the fact that uh, many peoples and communities have been living through crises uh, for a long, long time, often unacknowledged. So. Uh, I think that's important to uh, surface that right now. So, um, in fact, I should uh, jump to introduce our, our three panellists because we've got three marvellous writers here with us tonight. And apologies if internet connections are a bit uh, iffy at times. Um, we have been battling with this over the last half hour, trying to work out how best to um, overcome these structural technological uh, limits. But uh, in any way, in any case, we're going to soldier on. So. Um, uh, uh, the first in the panel, who you've just heard from, Evelyn Averlewin, uh, is a poet, educator, researcher, uh, working with Indigenous literatures at the University of Sydney. Uh, her works won a whole range of prizes, the Nakota Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers, the Overland Judith Wright Poetry Prize, uh, Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship. Uh, she's born, raised and writing in Darug country, uh, and she is a Bundjalung descendant. Uh, so we're very happy to have you here tonight with us, Evelyn. Uh, a second uh, writer of note, Tony Birch, Professor Tony Birch. is the author of best-selling books, The White Girl, Ghost River, which won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Indigenous Writing, and Blood, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. In 2017, he was awarded the Patrick White Literary, Literary Award. Uh, and th just this month, uh, he's got a number of new books coming out. His new book, Whisper Songs, a poetry collection, was published. And in a few months, his new book of short stories, Dark as Last Night, will be released. Uh, Tony's a frequent contributor to the ABC local and national radio, regular guest at writers' festivals, and a climate justice campaigner, and very well known indeed. And our third writer, James Bradley, uh, another very well known Australian author and critic. Uh, his books include Rack, Clade, one of my favourites, Ghost Species. Uh, his books have won and been shortlisted for a whole range of Australian and international literary awards, 
In 2012, he won the Pascal Prize for Australia's Critic of the Year, uh, as well as writing fiction. You've probably seen his essays and his articles in The Monthly and The Guardian, uh, Sydney Morning Herald, etc. Indeed, last month, he was awarded the Order of Australia for his service to literature as a writer. So we've got three fantastic, well-known, very prominent Australian writers uh, on this panel tonight. We're very lucky to have them, and I thank them all for agreeing to participate. And we were going to be doing this face-to-face, of course, until our latest lockdown put paid to that, and we're now all on internet and Zoom and struggling with the technology, but I think it's going to be a marvellous event tonight. So um, the, the theme tonight is really to sort of focus on this issue of crisis and, and what impact writing can have in that space. Uh, and that extends... I think this concept of crisis extends from obviously our current focus on the global pandemic, which we're all dealing with in different sorts of ways, um, to the now very visible manifestations of the climate crisis, uh, which we've seen in in the fires and the floods and the heat waves of racking uh, North America currently and and much of the Northern Hemisphere, Uh, the collapse of biodiversity, the sixth great extinction event, and the more subtle but no less alarming disruptions of the phosphorus cycle and the nitrogen cycle. So we are living very much in an age of consequences and natural environmental crises coming home to roost. Uh, And just reflecting on this, some of of my own writing with with colleagues uh, in in my own field, we were reflecting on this concept of crisis and catastrophe. Uh, And and one of my colleagues, Christian de Kock, who's in Copenhagen, he's quite an adherent to the works of the German-Jewish philosopher, Walter Benjamin, who noted in the 1930s that the catastrophe of the crisis is not just something waiting for us in the future, some dystopian uh, catastrophe, um, but rather the likelihood that everything goes on continuing, sort of business as usual. So for Benjamin, running from the context of the rise of Nazism in the 1930s, it was the catastrophe was this continuing movement towards um, uh, almost a preordained future. Uh, and that it was through new understandings of the past, a rupture in our modern time consciousness, that the past might, quote, open up to us with unexpected freshness and tell us things no one has yet had the ears to hear. So as we'll see tonight, it's not just that we live now in an age of unfolding crises, um, but for many peoples and communities, been living through um, ongoing crises. Uh, and this, of course, is the history of colonialism and imperialism and conquest upon which the Western Enlightenment imaginary of progress is based. Okay, so let's um, move to our three writers. And I've got some questions I thought I'd ask them, uh, which we'll discuss over the next 45 minutes or so. And then we will turn to you, the audience, for our Q&A session. So um, I thought I'd start with this question about, for for the three of you, what for you epitomises these times as a point of crisis? And how is this perhaps reflected in your writing. Um, and and maybe, maybe I could start with James on this one and then we'll work through to Tony and, and Evelyn. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this idea of current as a time of crisis? I don't think there's any question we are in a kind of moment of crisis, but it's not, it's not a brief moment of crisis. It's been going on for a long time. But I mean, I, I was in fact talking about someone to someone about this the other day and I, I, I was saying, look, you know, what you could have said three or four years ago was that, particularly with the climate, we were at a point where by about 2020, the big climate disasters are going to start rolling through, you know, and, you know, we've just gone through a series of them in Australia. They've been happening in Africa, 
you know, and now in the US, I mean, what was it? it was almost 50 degrees in British Columbia the other day. I mean, that kind of heat dome over the west of, over the west of um, America is, you know, you have this kind of visible crisis where all of those climate systems are clearly, you know, kind of hitting their limits. And we're at the kind of outer edge of what all the predictions were on it, almost every case. And that, you know, there's a level at which what you can see happening around that is the systems that kind of run the world beginning to crumble. And and that's happening on a whole lot of fronts and kind of you can see the kind of stresses beginning to happen. You've got kind of increasing dislocation of people. You've got increasing, you know, dislocation, extinction of species, you know. you And you've got this sense that our... You know, our kind of cities, our transport systems, our agricultural systems, all of those kind of things are just starting to fray, you know, and you can kind of feel that that process. And it's the kind of thing where I suspect, you know, if you're looking at it, you know, like I think that kind of stuff's quite hard to notice, that thing where kind of climate disruption arrives gradually and then all at once. And that kind of happens simultaneously over and over again. And we're kind of living in the middle of that at the moment. Now... That seems to me to be one of the challenges in writing this in this area is to kind of find a way of writing that can capture both that sense of a kind of larger temporality that's coming unstuck and that kind of sense of the way that then intrudes into people's lives. And now that's the kind of thing I thought about quite a lot in my writing. Like how do you how do you manage to bring together those two kinds of kinds of cycles and, and and then also how do you connect them to the kind of larger conversations that need to happen around them about you know this crisis didn't come out of nowhere it didn't start 20 years ago you know it started 500 years ago you know and and how do you you know how do, how do you make those connections how do you then start to think about where we go forward from here but yeah i mean it's one thing that i find really fascinating is that kind of sense of how do you how do you capture that sense of just kind of escalating crisis, that sense of fraying normality, that sense that all of these things are kind of colliding at once and that you're kind of seeing, as it happens, as we've seen with the pandemic, lots of the kinds of inequities and stresses and and kind of violences that are kind of embedded in our society, exposed by that crisis. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's almost like the sort of the mask has dropped to some extent, but I'm, I'm always sort of worried that there's a danger in seeing the present as somehow um, different from, from what has gone or somehow special in some way. Evelyn, what are your thoughts on this in terms of, do you see the, the current times as a point of crisis? Is this reflected in your writing or would you challenge that? I mean, I've only ever known this particular kind of reality that I, you know, occupy and I've experienced it uh, through a few different lenses, you know, the way that it manifests in terms of local communities, uh, my kind of coming of age during the internet and the kinds of exposures that that, um, that, that creates globally uh, to um, very different kinds of suffering from, you know, from what might be going on at a community level of my experience to, you know, um, entire worlds apart. Uh, So um, I absolutely think it's a point of crisis, but um, uh, James's point there about this is something that we've known about for such a long time, like, you know, we we kind of, there's an assumed 
kind of temporality an immediacy uh, that's suggested by the language of crisis but is it really a crisis if we watched it happen for decades and decades um, or is it more just the eventuality of our actions um, I have you know had conversations with excellent uh, excellent scientists and scholars who have said that it is already too far gone uh, I've had conversations with not just you know not just Aboriginal people of this continent but different Indigenous peoples all over the world for whom that kind of language and that logic of the misanthropocene and and essentially this this um, doomed to fail response is just not good enough uh, it's not sufficient and it doesn't attend to the ongoing realities experienced by vulnerable and marginalized communities um, I don't know where I like you know the original question that you posed was you know what what do you feel epitomizes and I'm I'm kind of wary of wanting a kind of single point of um, manifestation because it doesn't serve for any increased understanding that we've seen demonstrated into action you know there's no kind of singular point or action or event that will create enough sympathy or horror or response from a global audience that will then turn into action like that seems to be you know we've had like we had wars filmed and broadcast into people's homes we've had natural natural disasters filmed and broadcast into people's homes for decades and that didn't make a difference really so um, I don't know what epitomizes it. In terms of my writing, um, I feel like I see myself as a writer who is interested in history and is interested in um, sort of certain historic legacies, certainly not to the same point that I'd say that, you know, like Tony as somebody who is both a historian but is also somebody like really deeply concerned for futurity, um, particularly futurity for country and communities. Um, you know, I'm interested in what legacies brought us to the places that we're in and what attitudes allowed that kind of behaviour to happen or allowed um, history to march on in the way that it did. So, um, you know, I've done some work on the idea of like relic making and the notion that perhaps the particular kind of witness that we can offer is, is you know, essentially just kind of making fossils and relics that might be one day viewed by others uh, when the human society that created them is no longer there. But I don't want to rely on that as like, you know, a cop out for my writing because I think we have to take responsibility regardless of how bleak things look. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just fascinated by the idea of like what's found of us and I want that to be evidence that we weren't happy with this really which is so bleak i'm sorry <laughs> no it's um it's an interesting take i guess that whole sort of imaginary around a future species or something coming down to earth and digging up the remains of uh, of the anthropocene society sort of thing yeah it's an interesting sort of thought experiment tony what what for you is in terms of the this these current times do you see these current times as a point of crisis is that how is that reflected or is it reflected in your writing um it may be reflected in my writing but um i don't think any of my writing except for what we might call academic essays um deals with the issue of climate and crisis in a front-on way um it might seem odd but i i all of my writing i i would regard that 
from I'm writing for a, a, a position of, of disempowerment to the extent that I don't have any expectation that my writing will have any impact in this area. And if it does, I'll be eternally grateful. It's very difficult to measure. And my writing, I, I think, is simply um, initially for me to try and make sense of the world and the, the catastrophic world we live in. So I don't have any um, expectations about what my work will do. I think in regard to crises, I, I, it, is, it is true that we, we live in a moment of, of, of desperation in some ways. And um, what I do in regard to, say, what you might call climate activism is not use my writing. I, I still adhere to a more direct action um, approach to, to climate politics so that I'm just becoming, I'm soon to become a member of the inaugural um, board for SEED, the Indigenous Youth Climate Coalition. So what I see there is a role as you know, an advisor and someone with some experience to work with young Aboriginal people who are doing remarkable work by educating other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in their local community, empowering those people to do their own work on country and then moving on to, to other places. So I see that as an important role. I still see the reality of, of, of um, direct action in any form that I can use my body or my brains in is, is more important than worrying about the impact of, of my writing. And of course, I know this has been said and will be said again, but you know, the notion of crisis is interesting. I don't doubt that, um, I think you know, James's point about, you know, we have this sense of something looming and then it's just gonna be everywhere. And we don't know what sort of tipping um, energies that will create you know what does relative knock-on effects and disasters that will create and, and yeah that's the reality the the attack on non-human species is the reality the the reality of people living in starvation and losing their homes to rising seawaters is a reality i i have no doubt about that but i i also despair that we'll only see really strong global action from what we might call normally the wealthy west when it affects the wealthy west in a more direct way so yeah, we know that the experience of some global cities that are you know, overpopulated, um, under-resourced, lacking proper utilities, dealing with extreme heat with no um, way to escape that heat. This is the reality for many, you know, for billions of people in the world. So the crisis that, that we're contemplating in the West, you know, in big cities like Melbourne and City is a way of life for people in, in other big cities in the world. And what my, my sense of despair is that, you know, we only really care about when our air conditioner breaks down. So that I know that in the Black Saturday bushfires, which is an horrific event here in Melbourne, which did have enormous impact in the short term. I mean, the language around utilities um, from the federal government has talked about the fact, well, you know, if we go to renewables, you don't want your air conditioner to break down in a, in a, um, a heat wave. And this is you know, directly talking to the punters out there who have air conditioning. Mm. Whereas we should be saying, well, in fact, the real issue is with these heat waves, we're going to get more bushfires when more people and species are going to die. So I'm really concerned of the language directed at, at fairly shallow um, consumerism and ideas. And that's where, my, that's where my despair and angst is, I think. Yes, indeed. I mean, so much of the climate response is that sort of consumerist, individualist, sort of neoliberal framing, isn't it, you know? Uh, buy the green products, um, buy the sort of the uh, environmentally safe form of energy or whatever it is, and, and don't think about the more collective political sort of response. The other, the other point you made there about, um, you know, whether um, 
events will be sufficient to sort of change people's thinking. And, and Evelyn's point about, you know, uh, um, extreme events don't seem to have sort of changed consciousness. I always thought when, you know, New York City flooded with Superstorm Sandy back in, I think it was November 2012, you know, the most prosperous city in the world flooded by climate change, the politics would change. And they did for a couple of weeks, but then it went back to sort of normal. So I keep coming back to that Benjamin sort of idea that the crisis of the catastrophe is just things trucking along in the same old way down the railway tracks. Um, okay, so one one thing that struck me, I guess, with the current debates about crises um, is that there's much greater focus in the last 10, 15, 20 years on the natural environment. And I see this in business schools where I live where the natural environment was never really considered. But now, late, people are finally waking up to the fact, well, climate crisis, climate change, biodiversity decline, the natural environment, we can't take it for granted. So I guess my second question is, um, to what extent the issue of the natural environment and humans' relationship to the natural environment now forms part of your writing. And uh, I think I might lead off with you, Tony, because I think you have a poem about water and water use. It strikes me that your sort of your work is very much sort of focused on getting much more in touch with the natural world and, and this rather than a bifurcation between human and nature, seeing humans as part of the natural system. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just read the poem and then give a context of where my work has gone in the last year or so. And this is a poem called How Water Works from the water section in a new poetry collection I have out called Whisper Songs, which is just out. So I'll read the poem and then I'll talk about where I've been going with the writing. How Water Works. Cup of hand, skin and bone, water well, pulsing, molecules, life, one, two, three thousand years. Twice daily rises and gentle falls. Flow stories ask, who are we in this world? Let water run, circle, settle, be. Bowl of Arctic water moving slowly south, sleeping, ebbing, rising, upwelling loops of life, seconds, centimetres, patience, slowly, spirit, beauty and humility. Shapeshift onward through air bodies, entwined with other waters, in plants, in soil, in country. From pregnant clouds, rain on my roof, drumming, announcing the birth of love. Okay, so that poem is from this new series of poems I've been working on, um, for one of a better term, water poems. And just to give the context of some specifics in that poem and then give you a sense of, of how my work has maybe altered a little bit, is that I was looking at the qualities of water, but just the, the idea of how long a molecule can live in water or live in a riverbed. And we're talking thousands of years of water molecules having life. Talking about yeah, one cubic um, metre of water that starts its journey in the Arctic Circle and circling the globe and taking literally hundreds of years to do that. And my sense was, Absolutely, I was in awe of those facts, which, you know, dry facts, but those facts epitomise the incredible life force of water, water's relationship to deep time, water's relationship to patience and humility in the sense that when I understand how strong and how the qualities of water are so remarkable, I must relate to that in a, with humility as, as, as a human, if I could explain it that way. And so part of it was to, to you know, literally to eulogise and to, to, to talk about water as, as, as a place of strength and love. 
but of course doing so when we know that many of our water systems are under attack through climate and related events, whether it be the drying of the Murray-Darling, rising sea levels, which themselves are not at fault, but what we have done to cause the rising of sea levels is terrible, and the ongoing pollution of waterways. So my way of approaching it with the whole of the water poems is to, to do that, to engage people with understanding the spirit of water on country, the vitality of water on country, but also to be conscious and aware of the ongoing violence we do to water and mm. our planet. When other people were talking, I was thinking of something that, again, gets me to a point of frustration. So I'm writing essentially or often about the Birrarung River, which I live very close by. Um, people know as the Yarra River. Um, I had a beautiful run down there today. I visit the river, you know, several times a week. Um, you know, I drive my friends crazy on Facebook with endless photographs of the same bend in the river, um, the same bit of footage around Dites Falls, writing poems. So I love this place um, very dearly. It's an important Wurundjeri um, place. And what frustrates me is that there, a lot more people use the river now, which is great, and a lot more people appreciate the river now. So when I'm down there, there are a lot of families and kids and, yeah, there are kayakers at the falls, there are people running, riding their bikes. So it's become a more relatable place, a lovely interaction between people and place. Now, knowing the history of that river from European occupation until about the 1970s, that river was used as an open sewer. So in the late 19th century, all the textile mills along the river there would literally dump all their waste into the river. There, were no, there was no regulations stopping it, um, tanneries, abattoirs. So the river was just completely desecrated. And in the post-war era, and particularly from the 70s onward, there have been campaigns to clean the river up and it's been very successful. So my point is here is that I, what we recognise now is that I think you know, where, where I live, many more people appreciate the water. Many more people would not treat the water with violence. Many more people understand to their own extent the, the sacredness and value of that river. So I think there's a, a knowledge and a shared understanding of valuing this waterway beyond ourselves, but we haven't been able or we need to take that next step where, where we say, where, what now? Where do we take that love of place or that connection to a place and that value of place to much more, to active, to be active participants to stop this climate disaster that we're facing? Whether that be making sure we, we get a government who will um, commit to renewables, whether we accept that Indigenous people must be the owners and custodians of knowledge on country, we need to break through this moment of appreciation and take a much more, I suppose what you might, I would think is a much more energetic position and a proactive position. Yeah, indeed. And I think um, if we look at, at recent events, you know, the school climate strikes and, and these sorts of events, there's a much more sort of evident grassroots activism emerging, even in sort of local community protests against fossil fuel extraction or whatever it might be. Um, and that's quite heartening. I, for me, that's the sort of the more positive aspect of the climate crisis as opposed to the current horrible politics we see at the macro level. Um, Evelyn, how about you in terms of your writing? Is the issue of sort of hu human engagement and, and embeddedness in nature a key part of your writing and your concern? Yeah, um, so there's a kind of really explicit point of origin with my uh, general criticism of 
literary forms that seek to achieve the impossible and perhaps the irresponsible. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of eco-criticism and eco-poetics uh, that not, not all of it, and there are different practitioners and, and writers within that general space, uh, but there's this, um, this, I think, very naive and irresponsible attempt to, from some writers to try to uh, kind of focus attention on environment by removing human subjectivity and human agency. And I think, you know, why I say it's naive is particularly when we're thinking about the, the literary forms, you, you can't take subjectivity out. You cannot take human subjectivity out of poetics. Um, you can't, and it's not necessarily an interesting thing to do either. I think we can look at some very fractured linguistic attempts to undermine certain assumptions of human subjectivity. And I'm thinking here of writers like Paul Salan. Uh, but when you have this, um, this attempt to, uh, you know, to like emphasize animal or environmental subjectivities, what you're usually doing is just replicating and projecting um, uh, certain perspectives onto landscape that is, you know, not necessarily um, uh, in any way engaged with those ideas or shouldn't be engaged with those ideas. So I don't think it's possible and I don't think it's an interesting thing to do in the first place. Where I think it's irresponsible is that we kind of arrive at this idea that perhaps... Um, an environment untouched by human participation is the is the sort of best imaginary we should be you know conceptualizing we should be dreaming of post-human environments and we have this expectation of beautiful moss growing over buildings and you know deer returning into the cityscape and all of that kind of stuff and it it underestimates just how important human participation is with the sustainability of environments. So we do know there's been tons of research um, on the different ways in which um, uh, in which natural environments are actually participated in and sustained by Indigenous peoples. Um, and the healthiest land actually does have traditional land practices involved with it, whether that be fire stick farming, um, whether that be through the totemic responsibilities and negotiations of different animal and plant populations in a region. Uh, to best support the broader biodiversity, human participation is actually really important. And it's a naive assumption to kind of undermine our own culpability and our continued accountability for that environment. So I, I draw certain lines in my own writing about things that I think are acceptable or, or appropriate and are not appropriate. I'm really not a fan of um, humans writing animal subjectivities. I don't normally like where that comes from, uh, the kind of impulses that drive that. Um, and I'm very critical of this sort of, you know, supposedly politically neutral place that uh, people want to arrive at, writers often want to arrive at. And I ended up actually, you know, one of the, the sort of the more prominent poems of my book, Drop Bear, uh, Drop Bear Poetics, was actually written about about the kind of trend in Australian literature towards the writing of, you know, nostalgic Australian national iconographies and such, which are normally just sort of further entrenchments of 
settler colonialism and to um, replicate these images and ideas out of some kind of search for an Australian natural imagery and aesthetic of um, uh, our environment that that disregards how settler colonialism has cultivated a particular environment, one that is not healthy, um, one that is not sustained by cultural practices, rather it's sustained by land exploitation. Uh, I think, um, you know, I think we have a responsibility to create entanglement without um, indulging literary trends that usually are just not responsible to the realities in which the humans have now been erased from. So, um, yeah, I've, I'm, I've written a lot about why I think eco-poetics is naive and doesn't have a particularly good political, a sense of political stakes to it regardless. Um, and in my own work, I wouldn't necessarily say I try to, I'd, I'd be successful at attempting to kind of like give sovereignty and agency back to land because I think that's a lifelong project as opposed to what an individual work can achieve. And what Tony's talking about there as well in terms of, you know, like participation in rivers and how you bring a broader community into that and how literature can be a part of that, but also how other forms of textuality like social media, um, you know, sharing that kind of space and your perspectives on it with friends and growing awareness through that, that kind of localised action I think is really important. And um, I value that more than I think a singular poem could achieve that because that's ongoing participation and that's energy and that's a form of care. Um, so I write work that I hope kind of has com has conversations uh, with my environments and with country that I'm responsible to but mostly I just try not to get in the way of those places um, that's that's ultimately the ambition that I think eco-poetics could take up a lot more effectively and there are so many writers who are doing much more interesting things here than the worst version of that form I should say that uh, but I really think we have to have such a strong emphasis on accountability uh, and the responsibility of representation to place, to environment, before we start thinking about the different images and um, uh, icons we can draw out of those environments. Yes, indeed. I was, I was taken by your comment about the sort of earlier on the, the memes around the sort of the post-human um, which we saw, of course, with the early days of the pandemic, you know, all those images on social media of supposedly dolphins in the canals of Venice, which turned out to be in Sardinia or somewhere. But this sort of um, fantasy, I guess, that um, humans are the problem sort of thing. And, and then saying that, of course, gliding over the fact that it's a very small part of humanity that have caused the, the vast bulk of the degradation, the environment, the climate crisis, it's that, um, you know, high carbon consumption part of the global population, which is very small part of the whole equation. Um, James, how about yourself in terms of, and I know a lot of your novels are explicitly sort of engaged with environmental themes and issues, environmental destruction. Um, how, how does that feature in your writing and, and, and in terms of sort of building awareness of temporal and spatial connections with the natural environment, environmental destruction? Yeah, I mean, I'm, a bit, I'm actually probably a bit like, Evelyn, I'm quite suspicious of a lot of the kinds of representations you get. I mean, my interest is more about fiction and kind of film and stuff, but I mean, I am suspicious of a lot of those kind of versions of the apocalypse you get. I mean, that kind of Walking Dead thing where everyone's gone and there's 16 survivors and everyone else has conveniently vanished. 
And there's also that version of that where it's yet another lonely family living on a farm, you know, everybody else is gone. And and because they're, they're kind of visions of the future which eliminate the other people, you know, and, and the other people do tend to be all of those people, you know, all the, you know, the, the most serious impacts of the climate crisis are going to be felt by, you know, the poorest people in the world. And they are the ones who disappear. There's a kind of weirdly racist under, I think often explicitly racist undertone to a lot of the, those kind of things. But it seems to me that one of the things that happens once you pull back and you start saying so kind of what both Evelyn and Tony were saying, which is what does a world, a survivable world look like? you start having to ask questions about justice. You start having to ask questions about how might that world work? What might that world look like? How might it be different to this world? It's actually one of the things I really admire about the writing of Kim Stanley Robinson is that kind of attempt to actually do the thought experiment. Like, what might it be like? How might we get there? But it does seem to me that once you do that, you get to what Tony was talking about as well, which is this kind of, you're brought face to face with the fact that the kind of mechanisms driving all of this are you know, mechanisms of injustice, mechanisms of exploitation, mechanisms of violence. And, you know, it moves you away from that kind of passive, how do we reconnect with nature to, you know, I will say great line of Utah Phillips's, you know, um, the world is not dying, the world is being killed, you know, and the people who are killing it have names and addresses, you know, and it's a great kind of line because it brings you back to that sense that this is something that is being done it's not something passive that's happening it is something that is being done you know and as something that is being done it can be stopped you know and the way that you stop it is by doing things and it does kind of move you back and it moves you back to what tony was talking about what evelyn was talking about those kind of ideas of what might that action look like what might that reconception of the mechanisms that are causing it look like and it's one of the things you know that (laughs) it's both quite hard to do in books because it seems to me people fall into particular tropes about these things, but that kind of needs to be done in books. Like, how do we start asking those questions about justice? How do we start asking those questions about differential impacts? And how do we start asking those questions about what might a world that's still full of people but livable look like? You know, a more just, more kind of equitable world. And there's stuff out there doing it. You know, there's books out there doing it in really interesting ways. And, you know... There's actually, I think, increasing lots of great poetry doing all of this in a weird kind of way. You know, I actually find I, I keep reading I keep reading poets and being really jealous of them because their capacity to do kind of political critique seems so much stronger. But um, but but yeah, I mean, it is that kind of like trying to. It seems to me, yeah, we need to reconnect with the natural world. Yeah, we need to find ways of grounding ourselves in it more and more. You know, we need to renegotiate that relationship with nature. But actually, we kind of need to be angry. Like, we need to be doing stuff. We need to be accepting that this is a process that we can change. So, yeah, that's my manifesto. Sorry, I'll stop talking. Yeah, no, very good. No, excellent. And and when you um, raised that quote about these these people have addresses, etc., I kept thinking of... Um, Richard Heady's work, uh, he statistically analysed where the carbon emissions had come since the Industrial Revolution. 90 carbon majors contributing two-thirds of those emissions. So this sort of mythology that's everybody producing it, it actually boils down to 90 large fossil fuel corporations producing the vast bulk of those emissions. And we know their names, you know, and it's, you know, the usual suspects. Um, which brings to the, this next question, actually. 
um, the role of the writer in the age of crisis. Because James, in that, that response there, you're sort of pointing to the the need to sort of almost the writer as activist or, or or that sort of thing. So, writing in a time of emergency, altering the practice of writing, and I think you were going to you were going to read a short excerpt that perhaps might link to this, but maybe lead into this question about what is the role of the writer in this age of crisis? Do you think and has it has it changed? Let me read the piece, um, which is just from towards the end of Ghost Species, which is my most recent novel. Um, it's almost midnight before Eve arrives home, the house dark and cold. She flicks on the lights and then the heater, settles herself beside it. She knows she should eat, but she's too tired to think, too tired to speak. The world seems alien, her connection to it so tenuous that she is not sure it is there at all, even when she flicks on her screen and slips into the electric non-space of the virtual. For months now, the news has been about West Antarctica, the possibility the ice sheet has reached a critical point. But she calls up the news, she sees the story has moved rapidly in the hours she has been away and the sheet really is collapsing. And when she sleeps, she dreams of shifting ice, the yaw and tectonic creak of it, the way it slithers down into the waiting ocean, dark as grief. So I started write, trying to write fiction about climate explicitly maybe 10 or 11 years ago, 12 years ago. And... One of the things I think I was trying to do, and things I'm always trying to do when I write, is to try and work something out for myself. And and what I found was that I, you know, I, I thought all the time about climate, but I couldn't work out what it would be like. Like I had this thing about, you know, like whenever I tried to imagine it, I hit this kind of cognitive roadblock about, like, you know, the world is how it is now, and then it's going to be totally messed up. Like, and what's the in-between bit? What's the bit when it's messed up look like? I just, I, I kind of couldn't get there in my head. And so I wrote Clade, and one of the things I did with Clade was trying to actually think through for myself what that experience of living through kind of climate catastrophe might look like. You know, what might the world that comes out the other end look like? What might, you know, what what might that be like to be in? And, and one of the things I was really interested in was giving a sense of, I guess, the kind of effective experience of living through that. Because that seemed to me to be something that was lacking in our understanding of it, like that sense of what might this actually be like? You know, so, so the book was very much about trying to do that. But it was also about trying to get to grips with a series of ideas about temporality. And it seems to me that, you know, it's a, not a particularly original thought, but one of the things you have with climate is this kind of derangement of temporality. You have... You know, you have this sense that these kind of geological processes, you know, the breakup of ice sheets, the rising of sea levels, you know, the kind of transformation of landscapes is happening in kind of human time, in social time. There's this kind of eruption of geological time into a kind of human framework. And that's incredibly disconcerting to live with. And and so I guess what I wanted to do partly in that book was to think about how do you imagine these kind of temporalities moving against each other. How do you feel that? And also, what do you do about kind of the future? Because one of the things that also happens, I think, with climate is we get this kind of cutoff of our future. And I don't think that's a kind of function of capitalism. We find it very hard to imagine different worlds. But, you know, one thing I wanted to do with Clade was to create this this kind of framework where what you had this kind of, it kind of extended into the deep future. Because what that did was kind of create this sense that the arrangements we have now, the kind of economic and social arrangements we have now are contingent. They are temporary. You know, they seem, it's that great line of, um, that great line of Ursula Le Guin's where she says, you know, um, uh, capitalism seems 
it, it seems permanent, it seems natural, but, you know, so did the divine right of kings. You're like, it's, it, things can change. And so, so it seemed to me that with that book, one of the things I wanted to do was to think about those questions, like how do you make a space for kind of political possibility? How do you think about time? What might climate be like to live through? Climate change be like to live through? And, and you know, kind of in Ghost Species, I was asking kind of similar sorts of questions, which were about, but they were kind of framed more about kind of what is it like for it to be happening around us now? What does inevitability feel like? What, what, what does that sense that there's all this stuff now that we can't stop, you know, that we're, we're kind of stuck with it? I mean, you know, all four of us, our lifetimes are going to be characterised by, you know, this kind of transformation around us and a lot of it's going to be really, really bad and a lot of it we can't stop. So how do we think about the inevitability of all of that stuff? So I mean, seems to be there, I don't know the things that the writer should be thinking about in the moment, but they're kind of the things that this writer is thinking about in this moment a bit, you know, like they're, they're the kinds of things that I wanted to kind of get my head around in those books. Yeah, indeed. And you, you do it very well. So, Tony, how about you? How does your writing in a time of emergency alter or does it alter your practice of writing? Has, has your writing changed in, in this current era, given the sort of awareness of a crisis, different forms? Yeah, look, it's, it's probably changed in a way that mightn't be um, that helpful. Um, as I hinted earlier, I, I think it's changed to the extent that I think my my writing has less in, impact than I thought it might have had, or rather to say the role of the writer has less impact than I would hope that it would. We talked about this the other day because there's an inherent contradiction in this and maybe it comes from despair or maybe humility. If I'm asked the question as a reader, does writing, does writing matter? Does writing change? Does writing inform? Does writing um, provoke action? I'd say yes. So that... Yeah, my my. I think the most important writer of my life is is James Baldwin, and James Baldwin has not only equipped me to think in a more sophisticated way about race, he has energised me to act on those thoughts. So, as a reader, um, I say that writing matters. As a writer, I, I'm no James Baldwin, so I think well, does does you know someone who just listened to that poem does that have any impact at all? And I I'm a bit. I'm a bit sceptical. So, but I, look, as people who know me, I'm a pessimist by nature, but I'm a proactive pessimist. I decide to act on my pessimism, not, not go to bed and put the pillow over my head. So as long as I act on it. The other thing, though, and it's relative, though, but what I'm doing as a writer now that I've never written an, um, overtly or consciously about climate change as a fiction writer. Um, it comes into my work. It certainly did in, in The White Girl in relationship to Odette Brown's relationship to the sacred river that's part of her life. It's certainly coming through in some of the poetry and what I call my walking essays that I've been doing. But I'm interested in, I suppose, what I might call a broader connection and how it might um, lock into climate concern or more about concern for carer with each other. So currently I'm I'm actually, my next fiction project is looking at the underclass and as a category, as an identity, looking at poverty as an identity. So in other words, not looking at, at poverty in an urban situation for Aboriginal people, but looking at poverty in an urban situation that will include Aboriginal people, but poor white people, you know, all sorts of otherwise you know, separate identities. So I'm looking at that. And I suppose the question that I'm asking myself, and I have talked about this in relationship to my climate work, is that 
if you live in a, a relatively very wealthy city like Melbourne and you have tens of thousands of people who are homeless every night and you have across Australia over 100,000 people every night who are living on the street, and I'm not saying that you know, some of us don't care about them, I'm not saying there isn't some attempt to, to help those people, but at a broad level of, of government policy, if we allow people to experience that level of poverty each night of the week, each year, for, for some people for most of their lives, how do we get our head to a space where we say, as a society, we matter equally, and as a society, something like climate injustice, we need to act on it for in an altruistic way rather than a selfish way. Because as I started tonight, I agree with what had been said in relationship to, say, crises or dramatic weather events. We, we care a lot about them in the weeks afterwards and maybe the months, but then our care dissipates and we go back to normal. I think James, well, not hinted at, but James introduces the idea that what will happen, I think, in big Western cities is that we won't experience a crisis that will go away. We'll experience a dramatic change that impacts on our lives that won't go away. So we will have to act to address that issue. But my sense is that we're only doing that out of you know, selfishness. So we should be acting now. We should be acting now to protect people who have less. We should be acting now to um, assist the vulnerable who are now experiencing the effects of climate. So that if you look at Aboriginal people in Australia, we know that in the north of Australia where we have rising sea levels already in the Torres Strait, if we're looking at dramatic and increased dramatic weather events in the Northern Territory in Northern Queensland, we know that already marginalised and impoverished Aboriginal communities have much greater problem in having, say, utilities um, reconnected, of having infrastructure reconnected. We're already looking at gross inequities in Australia that are the outcome of dramatic weather events and climate injustice, and we're not doing anything about it. And the fact that we would wait until it affects us, and I say us, you know, nominally us in cities who, who are relatively better off, I think it indicates a, a, a level of, of, of separation in Australia that I find really difficult to, to countenance. I think it's mm. worth reflecting <clears throat> on the pandemic here, because as a relative um, crisis, there are some interesting issues. I think one, we could say, well, if we thought the amount of money we were willing to spend, and we didn't spend it at all in the right ways equitably, but the amount of money invested last year to deal with pandemic, if we'd said, I think before the pandemic, this is what it will take, and it will be the cost will be met by a conservative government, people would have thought that was probably unlikely, but it was. What I'm thinking about now, though, is that when we're looking at the vaccine rollout, and I know we have a lot of government misinformation, but I know a lot of people who are saying, I'm not going to have the vaccine either until um, I can get Pfizer. Um, you can have the AstraZeneca. You can be the guinea pig, but not me. Or that when we get herd immunity and 80% have got it, I don't need to get it. I'll be the 20% who don't get it, but will still have protection. And for me, there are too many people who are thinking indi individually and, and selfishly about how we're dealing with the pandemic in, in this phase of it. So I'm, I'm concerned about that because I would have thought that, I don't know why, <laughs> I would have thought that our adherence to take up the vaccine would have been much more uniform, much stronger. I know we have government which has lagged on this, but I, I, I sense some disquiet um, in the way that um, sections of the community have, have reacted to this in a way that 
I don't think it's showing enough care for others. Yes, indeed. I'm, I'm just conscious of the time and, and we are coming up to our Q&A um, part of the evening. Um, so I might just cut to our last question for our three panellists. Um, and it's around this idea that, you know, if we're focusing on writing in a time of crisis, crisis is often linked to grief and suffering and death and the full dystopian sort of fantasy, I guess. But crisis can also sort of be interpreted as a space of reassessment and learning and, and possibly growth, personal or, or more societal. And I'm wondering how this can be reflected in, in how you write, how we can find a sort of a more positive path in the current age of pretty grim projections of where we are and where we're going. And obviously the corrupted politics that we, we're currently living through isn't helping in that either. So I might start with Evelyn on this. Is there a way in which your writing tries to um, outline a more, sort of more positive path out of crisis perhaps? Well, I think, I mean, in terms of eco-grief and this sort of very specific phenomenon of the way in which um, uh, the way in which climate and climate futures affect uh, the experiences, particularly of young people, um, you know, we have this impulse to be like, okay, grief isn't productive, so we have to talk about anger now. And as James has pointed out, you know, anger, there is like a really important place for that. And I think we need to continue to emphasise the necessity of anger to build momentum uh, and to continue that energy towards, um, you know, towards uh, political, social, cultural, environmental changes and transformations. And in my writing, I think, you know, yeah, there is absolutely a place for anger. There is a place um, for, uh, you know, um, Momentum. There's even a place actually for an emphasis towards retribution and revenge, which is not necessarily productive, but I think acknowledging that that feeling and that sentiment is there uh, is important. But I have been, you know, I feel like I have kind of gone full circle in my own writing to a certain extent around feelings of uh, all this initial impatience I had with eco-grief and writing that was kind of just indexing suffering and devastation, usually from the perspectives of people who aren't losing that much, like, or who, whatever they lose, they're going to be the last ones to lose it. And so I find, you know, there's, and there's a, you know, there are novels like that coming out, popping up all around at the moment that I think are still performing what should have, we should have, you know, no longer really been um, uh, entertaining in that kind of space. But I think it's unfair to say to young people who are going through some incredibly difficult decisions, you know, like thinking of my generation, a lot of millennials are having to make the really painful choice that ambitions of home ownership and families and other kinds of lives just don't feel responsible anymore and they don't feel like decisions that could be supported environmentally or economically and I think it would be unfair if we took away a space for that kind of grief and for writing about that grief so I did write I wrote poems about you know the kind of futurity that I feel personally that I and some of my siblings and many people I know who are friends with who would be amazing parents and who would do wonderful things in terms of broader community support if they could have access to the kinds of lives and lifestyles that are no longer an economic political social reality for them um, you know I think it's important to hold a space for that and maybe it's not productive but writing should be about generosity and care and compassion as well as all of the important political things and if we can't honestly talk about 
the very sad kinds of realities that we are facing, then, you know, what's the point? Let's just go, you know, let's just go full revenge style um, in all of our writing immediately. But yeah, my, you know, like my ideal sort of poem that indexes a lot of this would be a combination of love and support and hope and so much hope for the future because we have to like what else can we do as well as a list of names and addresses for every single motherfucker that made this happen <laughs> indeed don't get mad get even um tony how about you just quickly in terms of your writing and, and finding a more positive sort of path in the current context yeah just a couple of quick points firstly in relationship to whatever everyone just said i think what older people you know us baby boomers have to realize if the, the grief that everyone is talking about it, it's it it's the, to the detriment of the whole of society if young people can't have a future or regard their future as something quite bleak around having family and i actually would be very proactively suggesting that we have to invest in young people and we have to pay for that so us people of my age and my relative wealth who have done well, we should be paying for that. We should be paying for that. We shouldn't be having franking credits. We shouldn't mm. be having negative gearing. We should be paying more tax to facilitate better outcomes for that generation. And I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a complete failure of government not to recognise that we need to invest in people who did nothing to fuck the world up. Um, in regard to my own writing, um, just very quickly, and I've, I've, I've spoken about this before, um, my younger brother died very suddenly just over two years ago, and I've written about him in fiction and poetry and a couple of essays. And it might seem even, well, I don't know how it sounds, but what I realised in regard to the strength of country and being optimistic and being energetic is that when I went back to the river after my brother had died and I, I walked that river every day to try and make sense of what had happened, what I came to the conclusion was that my brother was dead, but country around me was alive. It, country around me is badly damaged. It's been badly desecrated, but it's alive. And the sustenance the country gave me during that period has enlivened me to obviously defer to country, to respect country. And regardless, as a, as a a life force that that centers my world so in regard to my brother's loss the what has come out of it is to to respect and work with country in a much more proactive way and i have to say this personally there is some sense of a legacy for me that i want that work to respect his life as well so i i do feel you know, people often say when you work in climate area, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic? Mm. I say it doesn't matter what I feel, it's what I do. So yep. you just very, very true. Get, you just got to get out there and do the work and hope for the best. Exactly. Marvellous. James, you're lucky last. What, what's your vision for possible? Is there a possibility of a positive path in the writing in this current context? Um, look, I'd probably say something similar to what, both Evelyn and Tony said, which is, I mean, it's, it sounds kind of hippy-dippy at one level, but there's something about recognising human connection, recognising kind of love and care, which are one of the things that writing can do, which matters, because that's actually what will save us. You know, like that kind of care for other people, that kind of investment in future generations that that kind of you know i mean i sound like a hippie but you know kind of love is actually really really important care is really really important but i actually think the other thing 
like, like I'm always a bit wary of the idea of hope. Like, I mean, it, it, because it becomes this kind of abstract, you know, everything will be okay. But it seems to me hopes are much more, it's a much more practical kind of thing. It's a part of kind of acceptance of where we are and an attempt to make things better. And, and you have to have that belief. And one of the ways you hold that belief, one of the ways you manifest that belief is by recognising that the future isn't set, by recognising that, you know, there's an awful lot of stuff that's in place that we can't change, but that, you know, the reality is the world will be different in 50 years' time, the world will be different in 100 years' time, and what we do now affects that. And that there is this kind of... Like, I think there's a real danger to fall into that kind of binary thinking where people go, because the current system is unsustainable, it will collapse and we will all die, you know. And it doesn't seem to me that it's that simple. You know, there's a lot happening already. There is more that will happen. What we do matters. And one of the things I think writing can do is to bring you back to that idea that, you know, nothing's ever black and white. Everything's always complex. It's connected to past and future, you know, and and change change happens, like change, change comes. Like, I don't know, God, I sound like a hippie. But, um, but you know, it is, it is kind of true. And it's one of the things that I think writing does is it brings you back to that kind of question of complexity, that question of, of, you know, things aren't binary. Things just aren't binary. You know, the reality is that, you know, we're going to get a lot of things wrong, we'll probably get some things right. You know, some stuff's already lost. You know, other stuff is not lost yet. You know, like it... That's what we need. That's what we need to work with. Um, but yeah, so that's my hippy dippy answer. You know, I mean, I think the way that you combat the grief is by recognizing just care and love. You know, and care and love for each other, care and love for place, care and love for people that you don't necessarily know. You know, that that, that matters. No, that's excellent. Um, fantastic responses. So we have actually got some some questions appearing. So we should get into our Q and A because time is ticking away and. Um, First question, there's actually a couple of questions linked to a similar theme around writers having a responsibility. Uh, I'm looking at uh, Ross Letts's uh, question on the Q&A, thinking of Clifi's tendency to create more fear than inspiration, um, which would be appro- maybe appropriate in a time of crisis when panic is the appropriate response. And there's a, a further earlier submitted question from Kamal Gupta, is writing about our current crisis appropriate in literature or should the writings be censored where needed? So, um, yeah, interesting thought. I, I was reflecting on that, uh, having read uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, that first chapter where he describes the heat wave and the millions of people dying in India from the heat wave. It's a particularly graphic, ghastly sort of vision that he betrays. And reading that, I almost felt like, yeah, maybe that should have been censored a little bit. But throw it to the panel. Um, thoughts on um, whether writers should be um, toning down their... Their uh, horror and grief of the future, possibly. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Perhaps we start with um, Tony. Um, well, I don't write cli-fi. I, I read a bit. I remember when I read Comet McCorpy's The The Road. I did want to yes. go, go to bed for six months. Um, but having said that, I've recovered, um, and I've read the book again. So I wanted to go back for more punishment. Um, I certainly. No, I don't think um, the writing should be censored at all. And, and I'm not, by the way, this sounds weird. I'm not saying that 
well, I'll use the term. I'm not sort of saying there's no such thing as censorship. I think, yeah, there are some things that need to be cancelled occasionally. Um, but I don't think so. I think that the realities are far worse. And I, I, if someone said by toning it down, we, it might... Um, it might gather action and you know, sort of energise us rather than defeat us, I would go of it, but I think that's a false notion because I, I don't think that writing does that in the long term anyway. So I certainly wouldn't um, be, be interested in, in censoring it. I also think, I suppose, though, because it's a relative question, is again to remind ourselves, and James talked about this in relationship to some of the you know, apocalyptic pop, popular culture, is that, I, I personally think we overestimate its impact, as in the sense of sustained impact for either change or, or inertia. Um, I don't watch a lot of zombie films, but the ones that I do haven't really swayed me either way. So I'm not big on, on popular culture having a sort of ongoing dramatic impact on us. I think that reality is both either more depressing or more energising. So I'd be saying maybe you, you need to make decisions whether you'd watch the news or not. Yeah. Indeed. What, what about James or Evelyn? What are your thoughts on this? You know, do writers need to tone up the optimism and tone down the, the pessimistic takes or is that um, a false hope in some ways? I appreciate why that is um, a kind of a, a question and why that seems to be the object of, of um, some amount of inquiry there. Uh, but I don't know if it's a difference in tonality here that's going to shape the way in which a writer's responsibility can attend to the realities that we're working with here. I think um, uh, it's about informing and educating and raising conscientism, which isn't necessarily the same thing as raising or increasing, um, you know, uh, uh, the hope drive of, um, you know, of anybody who has access to afford some manner of change. It's about increasing their awareness of the ways in which different political, social, economic forces interact and increasing a comprehension of their own capacity and their own role within that. So that's why, you know, I'm so critical of, um, uh, this kind of literary de-emphasis of, of humans because I think it's incredibly important that um, we be talking constantly about responsibility and capacity and what is within the capacity of individuals as well as communities. We've, you know, we've kind of come to this language that the only way to afford any kind of change is to, you know, attack the big businesses and corporations that have been creating environmental degradation and that's true that absolutely is true and that needs to be the main force of energy and people lecturing other people on twitter about whether or not being vegan or not is going to make the mass the, the biggest difference like we should have these conversations and literature is like a great place to be having them but um, thinking constantly as much as we possibly can about what is achievable within your own grasp and how do you have inspiration and momentum towards doing that. I think that's important. And whether that's hopeful or cynical, I don't know. That's just going to be subjective anyway. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, they're not it's, – it's, it's a tricky kind of thing to have direct answers for and it really all is always just going to be dependent on um, 
uh, how you engage with your environment as much as it is about how you engage with the media that gives you a sense of your own personhood and your own participation in the community. Uh, everyone is just so incredibly individual. Um, so we should be talking about individual accountability and how that, um, how literature can help shape and encourage that, I think, as well as, you know, um, big, uh, big global campaigns to address major uh, the, the major contributions to our current state, environmental state. Yes, indeed. James, what's your thing? How, how uh, can... yeah, look, look, I'd say three things really quickly. One is that yep. I always think it's a mistake to think that there's just one thing that books do or that stories do or anything like that. I mean, it seems to me that we do all kinds of things with them. Sometimes they're about thinking through future possibilities. Sometimes they're about, you know, I think we use a lot of kind of disaster and apocalyptic stuff as kind of theatres to kind of play out anxieties, you know. Um, so we use them in all kinds of different ways. There's no one way you do it. The other would be that I think it's really important that writing not be complicit with the... I mean, you know, Amitav Ghosh has written about this, you know, but, I mean, that kind of notion that so much writing is complicit with the kind of vanishing and hiding of the crisis. And I think it's really important that writing not be complicit with that, that it be talking about it and that it be engaged with it. Yeah, I mean, look, and the other would be that I just, I think I, I wonder about the idea of wanting particularly novels and poems to enact social change, because that just doesn't seem to me to be the right test for them. You know, like it's, I mean, sure, they can be engaged in that process. Yes, sometimes they'll be successful at it. But if that's, it's kind of the wrong test. I mean, one of the things that you want novels to do is to, and poems to do is to talk to the moment, to understand it, to represent it, to kind of bear witness to it. You know, and they're all important processes, but they're not necessarily going to change the world. You know, so... So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I think about it all the time. No, no, fair <laughs> enough. No, it's good. All good responses. Excellent. Okay, um, just time for another question here that's caught my eye. I think it's also from Kamal Gupta. How can we influence younger generations to start reading again in order to keep the novel and book culture alive in a world where books are replaced with TV and social media? I plead guilty on this one too because I'm absorbing far too much social media at the moment. Uh, any thoughts on this? And, and is, this a, is this a valid binary or can we have sort of reading cultures developed through other mediums beyond uh, books, etc.? And is this a problem with younger generations reading again? I don't know. It's not. There's nothing to substantiate that. Um, we've had a massive increase in the way in which um, like globally literacy is being accessed across different age groups but also uh, across different class groups. And I think that it's um, a, potentially a bit of a misreading of the way in which young people use social media, uh, certainly for like trashy melt your brain possibilities. Absolutely. Like I am not going to defend some of my social media habits in any regard, but if you look at these spaces and you look at the rise and fall of certain social media platforms, say like going from Tumblr to TikTok, uh, there is like a massive amount of political commentary and conscientiousness that is being built up in these spaces, particularly for marginalised communities. 
Uh, so like it's uh, being used in very specific and amazing ways by, um, you know, First Nations globally. Um, but uh, kids are reading. They absolutely are reading. A lot of them are really into audiobooks at this stage, which I think is really cool. And I would really love it if we could undermine the uh, influence of Amazon in that space because it's one of the only kind of ways to get your, your audiobook out there, which is really important for accessibility. Uh, and um, a lot of people, for a lot of people, that's their only way of accessing literature. And so we should encourage it, but we need to break down the monopoly of major corporations like Amazon in controlling those kinds of spaces. But um, young people are like they're making zines in their, you know, in their living rooms and stuff. They're totally engaging with literature, and I think that it's. I understand that question, but I think it's a. It, I just don't think it's necessarily backed up by any actual sociological research. It's people my age who are just watch Netflix all day and night <laughs> pandemic. So, yeah, maybe we should get back to reading. Uh, yeah, how many times <laughs> can you watch Peaky Blinders? But um, I think also just to briefly um, touch on Evelyn's point of I'm lucky that several of my books are taught in high schools and I get to visit those high schools regularly. And all I can say is by my experience is not only are the kids still reading, their insight into literature, their insight, the questions they ask, the discussions I have, particularly around the last book, The White Girl, I just come out of those rooms and think, fuck, these kids are amazing. So maybe like everyone, they drop off reading for a while after they leave school, which is a habit that a lot of us engaged in, although I left school at 10, so my habit lasted a bit longer. Um, so I, I'm actually like Evelyn, I think that young people that I know are, you know, literature in different forms and different platforms of course but um now i think um we should be more optimistic about what young people are doing than what old people are doing james have you got any reflections on this any changes in reading culture and young people getting into books because you write books targeted at children as well don't you yeah i have yeah um oh look i'd probably just echo what i mean i i'm not convinced that the binary is like Evelyn, I'd say I'm not convinced by the binary. I mean, I think clearly reading habits have changed, but I think one of the things that's also changed is the kinds of communities and hierarchies around reading. So the way people come to books, the way people come to different kinds of writers has changed. And I, look, you know, I mean, it, it, it seems to me that 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 just produces a different kind of reading culture. I mean, and I do think also that social media... You know, I mean, I think social media has a lot of minuses, you know, but I also think that it has clearly been incredibly useful at building various kinds of networks. You know, I mean, I know from my own experience that there's a really big kind of community of people writing around environmental questions, both here and overseas, that I have come into contact with and found, you know, kind of developed relationships with and it's been such a beneficial process for me. You know, like all of these people that I would never normally have met, you know, and and being able to talk to them and learn from them and share things with them has been so incredibly rewarding and beneficial and and you know, I mean I, I think that, that that's a great thing. So look, I mean I'm I'm not sure that I think the binary is that simple. You know, I mean I you know I I'd like I'd like young people to be reading more books, particularly mine, Evelyn's and Tony's, particularly if they were buying them. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm convinced that 
that it's that simple. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I watched a lot of trashy TV when I was young. I still do. It doesn't stop me reading books. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Yes, indeed. I, I, um, I proselytised my own students the benefits of social media as a sort of a, a way to get in touch with issues and concerns. I have to say, you know, a lot of the writing and that I've found, books that I've found have come through recommendations on Twitter or other places from, from people I know or people that I've never actually met. So there, I think there's a lot of upsides to the social media side as well. Do you think current forms, genres of writing, music or art have the power to motivate the kind of collective action, suffering and sacrifice it will take to stop those who have the wealth and power uh, to destroy the future? I'm paraphrasing. That's basically um, just, I mean, two very quick responses. First, no, baseball bats might work more effectively <laughs> than writing. But secondly, um, it relates to something that came up, and that is about history or about young people. One thing that young people, I think, could read more of is history to understand why we're in this current predicament. Yeah. The reason I say that is that, and it does address the question directly, is that when I was involved in the debacle called the History Wars, um, and one of the reasons I got out of it was it, was it was such negative energy around it. But what I recognise is that when people were saying, why aren't Aboriginal people involved in this debate? Why aren't Aboriginal people writing about this debate? And what the question should have been asked is, what different forms are Aboriginal people responding with? So that young people, people of, who would be now of Evelyn's generation, so people you know, 20 years ago who are in their early 20s to early 30s, of course they were addressing these issues and it addresses your question because they were making film, they were doing photography, they were doing dance, they're doing other forms of performance. So I think what I would like about the question is say, yes, we must always have an incredibly diverse range of telling story, interrogating um, dominant narratives like colonialism. And I think not just young Aboriginal people, but if you look at what young black fellows and black women are doing is they are incredibly dynamic in addressing these issues and including the use of social media. So I'd say, yes, it has to be done, but yes, it is being done. It is being done effectively and we need to encourage it and, again, to support it. Indeed. I think that's a, that's a great way to finish up tonight, actually. On a, uh, a powerful point there about action is happening and people are being involved in writing and a whole range of ways around these critical issues so um usually at this time of the night if it was a live thing i'd ask everybody to applaud and thank the panel but clearly we're on zoom and we can't do that but uh it has been a fantastic discussion i think you'll agree i'd like to thank um our panel our three speakers evelyn tony and james um had a lot of fun doing this and hopefully you guys out there in the audience have enjoyed it as well um just uh, to, to wrap up, if you want to stay up to date with upcoming events for Sydney Environment Institute, there's links in the, in the chat there. Um, you can also follow Sydney Environment Institute on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and there's lots of fun stuff coming up down the track, so stay in touch. And hopefully, once we're out of lockdown, we'll be back to doing face-to-face -face, uh, events, which will be even more fun. So thanks again. Thanks for your participation and all the best. And stay safe, everybody. Bye now. <laughs>